in what ways, question, a little conversation here. I'm going to take a couple of weeks on Laodicea. But in what ways can a person be religious yet indifferent to what God wants? In what ways can a person be religious yet indifferent to what God wants? Discussion time. Yes, sir. Okay, I go to church every Sunday so that you can religiously attend and, and even be a member, be, sing in the choir or be the pastor of the church, whatever, and, and yet can, you can still miss out on what God, God wants to do in your life or through your life. Uh, just because you go to church doesn't make it, make it all right. All right. I was going to church for 20 years going to hell. So, yes, Pam. Ah, okay, you can memorize the word. Um, guess who knows the word better than you and me? Satan. And he uses it. He misinterprets it, but he uses it trying to uh, deceive people as well. Um, anyone else? In what ways can a person be religious yet indifferent to what God wants? Okay. Okay. All right. So a person that you know, a friend of yours, uh, talks about God a lot and yet is living in sin in a relationship with someone uh, that she's not married to. Am I understanding you right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And she justifies her behavior. I've had this, I've talked to people the same thing over the years. So, all right. Um, Next question. What are some ways people in our society today are deceived? Are deceived? What are some ways people are deceived today? All right. People think there's many ways to heaven. And yet, biblically, there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Period. All right. Okay. Some people don't even think about heaven or what happens after you die. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Hope. Science. Following science. Okay. Our science gets in the way. Okay, if uh, someone you know believes there is no hell, even some pastors preach that too, and that uh, everybody goes to heaven. Rebecca? Okay, because God is gracious and God is a God of grace, I can live like I want to live, and God understands it. You know, he knows our humanity. It's, it's, all, it's all good. So, yeah, okay. All right, last question. Yes, Robert. What's that? Sin is relative? Okay, explain that. Okay, what, what might be sin for somebody else is not sin for me, okay? Yeah, good. Yep. All right, last question. How can, how can prosperity become the cause of lukewarmness in a Christian? If we're prospering financially, then we must be doing okay spiritually, all right? How can prosperity become the cause of lukewarmness in a Christian? Rebecca? Okay. Not fully relying on God because you feel self-sufficient. All right. We're going to talk about that quite a bit in the last church that we're going to look at, Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, if you want to turn there. And go ahead and start recording if you haven't done so already. And for those listening online, I found out today that on average we have 19 people listening to this 
Wednesday night teaching online every week. That's the average. And so I want to welcome those who are listening from Malaysia, those who are listening from the United Kingdom. It tells us who we're listening. So if you're listening from those places, God bless you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, tonight, as I said, we are starting on the last of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to. And it is not true that the best is saved for last. <laughs> because if we took a poll as to which of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 was the worst, Laodicea, I think, would win by a landslide. Uh, Sardis would probably come in a close second. Uh, that's not good because Christian commentators for centuries have associated the condition of the Laodicean believers with the present-day church. Uh, as a matter of fact, many commentators, if you, if you study this out, uh, believe that the seven churches represent the seven seasons of time and that Laodicea represents the condition of the last church in the last days prior to the second coming of Christ. Uh, I want to just clarify something for us again. Uh, if you read the Bible, you will understand. People say, well, we've been living in the last days. Well, we've been in the last days uh, since the time of Christ. Hebrews says, but in these last days. And so we've been in the last days since the time of Christ. And so that being true, uh, every day that we live, every year that goes by, uh, we are one day or one year closer to when we first believed. I mean, so it's getting closer and closer. Even Jesus says repeatedly uh, in, this, in this book, uh, I'm coming soon. Now, his soon and our soon might be different things, no doubt, but um, if he said it, it's going to happen. We're going we're to get to that tonight as well. But many people believe that, that Laodicea represents the apostate church, the church that we are to, that to denounce. And, and the thing I, I really want to point out tonight in that is, as backslidden as this church might be, as lukewarm as it might be, uh, Jesus still loves this lukewarm church. And uh, that's, that gives me hope because uh, the condition the church is in, um, he, he still wants to bring restoration. He wants to bring uh, 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 passion and, and revival and whatever. So uh, I know that some people have seen these churches as a prophetic ladder that they represent seven ages of the church history. Uh, they, they say, and I'll, I'll make some comments after I make these comments, but uh, they say that the first letter, the letter to, to Ephesus, represents then the apostolic church, which was at its close, beginning to lose its first love. The second letter to the church at Smyrna represented the second and third century of the church, the church of the martyrs, with whom the Lord has nothing to condemn, uh, in it, but only commendation. The third letter to Pergamum, represents the time during the reign of Constantine when there was an elevation of the clergy, the Nicolaitan heresy, the beginning of compromise in the church. Thyatira represented the age of the papacy. Sardis represented the time after the Reformation. Philadelphia, the sixth letter, the one we looked at in December of last year, represented the missionary expansion of the church. And then Laodicea being the seventh and last a letter represented the church just before the Lord returned, the church which was lukewarm, the apostate church. Now, sometimes, I said all that to say, sometimes I feel we try to force this text in Revelation chapter 3 to go places where it doesn't fit. 
In other words, it's kind of like you ever put a, piece, a puzzle together, and Jill likes puzzles, I don't. But uh, you say, well, this piece might go there, and you kind of force it in there, but it doesn't really go there. Well, people do that with Laodicea. I think what we need to do in looking at all these letters is to recognize, as I have tried to do as we're studying this, that these are letters written to real churches in the first century. Yes, they are representative in character, and we can learn from every letter what Christ does and doesn't approve, but we bring this to today's church. Uh, you can Honestly, you can take any given seven churches today, take any given seven churches, and you're going to find characteristics in those seven churches the same as Ephesus or Smyrna or Laodicea or Pergamum or Sardis or whatever. Uh, take us as a congregation. You can take us today and find some whom the Lord would have nothing to condemn and some whom the Lord would have nothing good to say. You know, uh, that's what it is. Uh, others would be lukewarm. Others would have little power. But the Lord sets before his church an open door. Others might be dirt poor in the church today, but spiritually rich. And so keep in mind that these letters, in terms of their devotional applications, speak with great meaning to each of us. So I believe, honestly, we have to be careful not to fit these letters into some sort of prophetic mold uh, because one commentator said this or another one said that. Now, with that being said, let's get into the background of this church. To understand really the letters, the letter, I should say, to Laodicea, uh, it's helpful to understand something about the city. I mean, the church, uh, in each case, many times, would take on the characteristics of the city. Laodicea was the chief city of Phrygia. The city was founded by Antiochus II in the middle of the 3rd century before Christ and named after his wife, Laodice, L-A-O-D-I-C-E. Just forget the A and the N. Uh, the city was located about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia on the road to Colossae on the river Lycus. Uh, the city of Laodicea itself was kind of a paradox. In other words, it was a city on one hand of failure, but on the other hand, it was a city of success. First of all, it was a city of failure in that it had not achieved the purposes for which it was founded. Laodicea, the city, was founded for two purposes. It was founded, first of all, as a fortress city, uh, a city on the great road that led from Ephesus to the east to Syria. The only problem was that this city was, that was once built, it, it was discovered once it got built that there was no water supply. Uh, hello, engineers, you know. Um, within this city, and that the city had to depend on the water supply that was like six miles away to the south. So they had to lay an underground aqueduct to feed the water into the city. And so really when an army would surround Laodicea, it would quickly discover that the city was totally dependent on an outside water supply source and would quickly cut off the water supply so the city would have to then surrender. Uh, you cut off the water supply, don't have water, we're going we're gonna to yield, we're going to surrender and meet your demands or whatever. So it was not, it was not uh, a, good, a very good fortress city. And not only that, it was founded to be, in a sense, a missionary city for Greek culture and Greek language. Uh, a few weeks back in December, we looked at Philadelphia and the sixth, the sixth city we looked at. And, and Philadelphia, you recall, had effectively taught 
the Greek language to the citizens of its surround. Uh, this city had been a total, but this city had been a total disaster. Uh, Laodicea was meant to Hellenize or to give the Greek culture and language to the region of Phrygia, and it had completely failed in its mission, so people were not learning Greek or Greek manners. And so also in that sense, it was a failure. But on the flip side of that, on the other hand, it was a great success for three reasons. And this comes into then what Jesus is about to say to this church. Laodicea was very prosperous. Uh, It was known for its wealth, but it was a kind of town that needed peace to prosper. In other words, Laodicea couldn't exist in a tense time. It was very descriptive of Christians who could get along in their spiritual life if they simply feel everything was going well, but let something go wrong and then they're in a real danger. It's what I call hot house Christians. When the environment's perfect, they're going to thrive. But put any kind of opposition there, any kind of suffering or whatever, then things don't go so well. And so here was a city, Laodicea, that can prosper as long as there is peace. The Romans brought peace, and under Roman rule, Laodicea had become incredibly wealthy. Even when there was an earthquake, a great earthquake in 60 AD, about 30-some years before this letter was written to the church, uh, that really destroyed the city, the city of Laodicea, check this out, had so much money that it rebuilt without any government aid from Caesar. That's how prosperous it was. Imagine, if you will, if, if Phoenix was destroyed in an earthquake, but Phoenix was so wealthy it wouldn't need any federal or state aid uh, to rebuild. Imagine then that kind of smugness. Look at us. Look what we've done. We have, we have it together, you know. And, uh, and so there was kind of a smugness because of their wealth, uh, that kind of spirit that refused government is, is no doubt rare in these days, but also in those days. And in Laodicea, because it was wealthy, uh, they could get by without any government help to rebuild. Therefore, Laodicea was a city of great banking and commerce, became noted for its wealth and banking industry. And in fact, Laodicea even boasted of its wealth. Number two, it was also a city known for its wool industry and its garments. Uh, It manufactured a particular kind of sheep was popular in the area that had black wool. Remember the old saying, Baba, black sheep, have you any wool? All right. It was known for its, its, its clothing and its black wool. Thirdly, Laodicea was noted for its medicine. In Laodicea, there was the headquarters of the export industry for eye salve that was used throughout the world that came in the form of tablets. You would grind up these tablets, you would mix it with with a little bit of water and became a doughy paste, and you applied it to a person's eyes. In those days, because people didn't wear glasses, they put put this salve on their eyes and thought it would improve their eyesight. And so it was noted for, and it was famous for its eye salve. All these things become important, wealth, clothing, and eye salve, in, uh, in the Lord's writing to this church. Because the church in Laodicea in later ta- latter times was apparently wealthy, flourishing. Uh, even, even one of the councils for which the canon of Scripture was determined was held in Laodicea in A.D. 361. 
uh, and yet hardly a Christian is now to be found on or near its site. To this church, then, the Lord identifies himself in terms of point one in your outline, his character. You can see I wrote down for you three things that is mentioned in verse 14 that we'll talk about. He, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler of God's creation. Revelation 3.14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus immediately calls the Laodiceans' attention to his identity to these three areas, the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler are the beginning of the creation of God. First of all, let's look at the title, Amen. When you hear amen, what do you think about? Good, well done. I like that. You know, I agree with you. Uh, when we think of, of the amen as something we say at the end of a prayer, we'll pray a prayer and we'll say amen. Uh, or when the service is over and the amen is said, it becomes the last word and it means so be it. Amen, brother, preach it, you know, those kind of things, you know, be it, so be it, truly, truly. And so here the Lord, by using the word amen at the beginning, is reminding us that he who has the last word is foremost, and he has not adapted himself to the changing nature of compromise, which has been the Laodiceans, the church's history here. Laodicea, you'll recall, had no strong character of its own and therefore it had to get along with whatever interest or political power was reigning. Uh, Laodicea as a city had compromised. The church in Laodicea also compromised. And so the word amen has as its root idea that of firmness, that of certainty, the assurance of faith. It's a term that guarantees and declares the truth. As a title of Christ, it indicates his sovereignty and certainty of the fulfillment of his promises. As Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. And so what Jesus is saying here as we, as we begin to look at the letter to the church in Laodicea, when I speak, it is the final word, and what I say is totally true, and it's also trustworthy. Now, what does that mean to a lukewarm church? Well, the church can trust the promises of Christ. Did you catch that? He will meet the needs of anyone who will repent and turn from trusting in themselves, but it also means that if you're lukewarm, you better heed the warning of Christ because what he said is true. So be it. All right, you better heed the warning of Christ. He is the amen and his judgments will be carried out guaranteed. What he said, he will do without question. He is the amen and what he says he will do, he will do. You can be assured of that. Now, so the Lord here, by identifying himself as the amen, is simply reminding this church that there is a certain kind of inflexibility and strength about him that he will remind this church of before he begins to address its compromising. So he is, first of all, the amen. Secondly, he is the faithful and true witness. He is a faithful and true witness in contrast to the church in Laodicea, which was neither faithful 
nor true. And so he's emphasizing his character and how the church is falling short of becoming like him in his character. In other words, what Jesus is here, the church is not. What he is, the church is not. The church is lukewarm. It only tells part of the truth, only bears part of the witness. It is only half faithful to Christ and to God. And so Jesus is simply telling this church, I am all you need and all you should be. I am the faithful and true witness. He describes himself as being faithful and true. John, you recall, in Revelation 1.5, also mentions Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, a witness can be either a blessing or a curse, depending on whose side he's on or how well he recalls the events that he's about to testify of. Leaving out a vital part or the information could change the whole outcome of the trial, but not so with this case. Our witness is not only faithful, he is the most reliable witness of all. And what he says is what matters, not what we say. The word witness, when used of the Lord, says that he is the one who has first-hand knowledge. Remember, he knows all things. There's nothing hidden from his sight. A witness, so, so a witness is one who has first-hand knowledge of something that has happened. So the Lord has first-hand knowledge of his church. By the way, the Lord has first-hand knowledge of you as well. The Lord has first-hand knowledge of me. And you can think you're, you're, you're fooling somebody, but you're only fooling yourself because, once again, he is the amen, he is the faithful and the true witness. And because he is the faithful and true witness, he will disclose his witnessing and what he sees in us so that we'll know what's on his mind. Now, why is that important? It's important to understand before we get to the application of the letter, because the Laodiceans had a totally wrong perception as to their own true spiritual condition, as, in, as is the case in, in most people. Uh, kind of like Sardis, who had a reputation of being alive, but were dead. And Jesus says, wake up. All right. And so he is the faithful and true witness. Remember, you shall know the truth, Jesus Christ is truth. Revelation 3, 7, to the church in Philadelphia, he is holy and true, so he is the true one. The word true means true as opposed to the false, the genuine as opposed to the counterfeit, the real as opposed to the unreal, but it's also the opposite of the imperfect, the defective, the frail, and the uncertain. The synagogue, you recall, said that Jesus Christ was an imposter, a fake, a fraud, the deceiver, the false Messiah. The application is this, though. Jesus Christ is the one and the only one who is true, is the true one. He is the true, the genuine, the real God. He is the only living and true God. There is none other. All the other gods worshipped by men are false, counterfeit, and unreal. He is the real deal. He is the true one. You recall that Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
He also said, I am the true vine, and my father is a husbandman. And then you recall in John 18, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king? To this end I was born. And for this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And so Jesus Christ is faithful to God the Father and bears a true witness to God the Father. Uh, you recall I, I mentioned this in, in a sermon on, during Christmas where Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So he is faithful to God and bears a true witness to God the Father. He is the amen. He is number two, the faithful and true witness. And then, then thirdly, underneath his character, he is the ruler of God's creation. The New International Version reads, the King James Bible reads, he's the beginning of the creation of God. He's the beginning of the creation of God. It is not being said that the Lord himself was created. A better way to read or understand this would be that the word beginning here means source. Jesus identifies himself as the source of creation. Now, one of the problems in the church, in, in, in the town as well here, was a, was a certain kind of self-sufficiency that says, you know, we don't need anything else. You know, we're, we're, we're well off, we're well to do, we're increased with goods, we're in need of nothing. In other words, we don't need the Roman government, just as, as the town didn't need the Roman government to rebuild the city after the earthquake. And, and the church has almost gotten into the kind of state where we says, well, uh, God, we're doing perfectly fine without you. We have our programs, we have the money, we have this, that going on. And, and, and so the Lord is identifying himself as the source of everything. Now, why is that important? Because without him, we can't do a thing. We need him. The, the key is to realize we need him, all right? He is the beginning, the origin, the first cause, the ruler of all the creation of God. He always was, is, and will be. He is the mediator in God's creation. Never forget all things were created through him, and apart from him nothing was created. John chapter 1, verse 3. The world was made by him, John 1, verse 10. Now that he has ascended to the Father's right hand in heaven, he has a place far above every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. And then in Acts 17, verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Apart from him, we do none of those things. And so he is the source, the ruler of all creation, the beginning, the source of, of all things. He is the one through whom all things were begun, and he will, bring, he will bring God's plan to its final consummation. He is still the one mediator between God and mankind. As Colossians chapter 1.17 says, By him also all things still consist or are held together. What I'm talking about is Jesus here. He is the creator of the universe. He is the maker and the sustainer. He is the source of all good things, 
all real wealth and all satisfaction, all purpose, all significance, all meaning, all love, all joy, all peace that a person experiences is, is because of who he is, because of his provision. Bottom line is this, life is meaningless without life, and he is life. Life is meaningless without Jesus Christ. And I know people today try to find meaning and significance and all kinds of things, but friends, those things will just leave you empty. You must be born again, and you must have a living, growing, loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Laodiceans were familiar with the letter to Colossae, which was said to be in their possession for at least a generation. Colossians chapter 1, uh, 15 through 23 says this. If you want to turn there and read along with me, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy, that he might have uh, 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 be first, preeminence. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood, his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel that you heard and have been proclaimed and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I read all that to get us to the chapter 2 where we read how the apostle Paul wanted the church at Colossae to know that he was struggling for, for you and for those who were at Laodicea. Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Paul writes, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. How many knew that Paul mentioned Laodicea in Colossians? All right. And for all who have not met me personally, Paul's purpose, he says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. You know, Paul says, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, I tell you this so that no one may, may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Now, we go on to Colossians 4.15. Paul also says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. 
And then in first, verse 16 of Colossians 4, after this letter has been read to you, see that it also is read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. And that letter was thought to be the letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, Ephesians. And so we have, number one, his character. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And he is the ruler or the beginning or the source of the creation of God. Now, as Jesus continues to address this church, it's customary and has been customary practice in in the letters that he would find something in the church to commend. The commendation. Number two, at Laodicea, he finds nothing to commend them for. Interesting. How many have heard the saying, last is best? Well, not here. All right. Of all seven churches that Jesus addressed, Laodicea was perhaps the worst. And furthermore, he has nothing good to say to this church. At least he commended the other churches that he addressed. Ephesus, number the first church. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you're doctrinally pure, that you've endured hardship. Smyrna, they were afflicted and poor and yet rich. Pergamum, Satan was in their midst and yet they were true. Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service. You're now doing more than you did at the beginning. So that was a commendation to start us. I know your deeds. There's a few that have not soiled their clothes there. Philadelphia, your deeds, you've, I know your deeds, you've kept my word, you've not denied my name. I mean, two churches have this quality in it, nothing to commend. Really, Sardis was on the border, but Laodicea here takes the cake. So why doesn't the Lord commend or affirm this church? Because sometimes the Lord will say no words of affirmation to us in order for, to get our attention. And to realize, you know, there's a problem here, and we have to work on this and realize there's nothing in our experience that he can affirm, so we need to take a good hard look at ourselves, really. And so that's why the Lord does not find or commend or affirm this church. Now, from outward appearances, I could possibly be impressed with a church at Laodicea. The fact that it had need of nothing would suggest to me that this church had it together. They probably had their yearly pastor's conference, you know, and all the people would come. I'm tongue-in-cheek saying this, uh, but maybe they had conferences to teach other people how to do things. Maybe there was a large library of self-help books in their possession. Maybe they had uh, an impressive building or an impressive organization, uh, an impressive financial record or whatever. It truly was, on the outside looking in, a church that might have been a model of the way church ought to run. It was in need of nothing, so they thought. But Laodicea, like the town, had become very smug in its way of doing things, in its way of seeing itself. So Jesus doesn't commend this church at all. Rather, he says, looking at verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm... I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I am about to spew you. Literally, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
but don't you realize, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. To me, anyone who is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked would know that they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, but not the case in Laodicea. Now, saying all that, let me deal with the bad rap Laodicea often gets because we and myself, we tend to be hard on this church. Sometimes I think that our assessment of the Laodicean church might be uh, exaggerated and off the mark. Now, are there things that are right with this church? If they are, we're not told. There, there's nothing said. Jesus didn't mention what was right. Are there things that are wrong? Oh, yes, there are. However, while this church was far from healthy, it was nevertheless part of the body of Christ. We must not forget that she was still included in the seven candlesticks, among which we see the Spirit of the Lord moving and walking. There's a very important lesson then for all of us, and maybe especially for those of us that make it a special point to say, well, we're witnesses for Christ, we're, we're Bible believers, we're spirit-filled, we're, you know, we're this and that and everything else. Here's a lesson. Nobody naming the name of Christ has the right to dogmatically oppose what Jesus Christ himself is committed to restoring. Did you catch that? Nobody naming the name of Jesus Christ has the right to dogmatically oppose what Jesus Christ himself is committed to restoring. What I'm saying is that before denouncing and judging groups we consider to be lukewarm and maybe even apostate, we would do well to take a minute and ponder what Jesus says about Laodicea. Look quickly at verse 19. He referred to these believers as those whom I love. As lukewarm as they were, those whom I love. I love. Here we see expressed really the true heart of the great shepherd of the sheep. What a great revelation of the heart of God expressed in these words, those whom I love. Really, this is the heavenly Hosea seeking to woo back his erring bride. This is the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after and search for that one lost sheep. Picture Jesus who wept over Jerusalem, now weeping over his wayward church, longing to gather them again to himself. For in his letter to Laodiceans, we see Jesus revealed as the bridegroom who knocks on the door, on the outside, who knocks on the door of his beloved, longing to be invited in by the ones he has loved with an everlasting love. This response... Love and longing to see restoration must be the only reaction of all God's people toward this apostate church. Think today how different the body of Christ would look if all the self-appointed and self-anointed spiritual diagnosticians actually would pour in the oil and the wine of healing rather than recoiling from this battered, bleeding body and passing it by on the other side of the road. What am I saying? Jesus still loves his church. As lukewarm as it might be, 
as apostate as it might be. Jesus also said it was the sick who needed a physician, not the well, in Matthew 9, 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And for this reason, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, Acts 10, 38, latter part of that verse. Now, as a pastor in the body of Christ, I often find myself walking through a valley of what I call dry bones. I see a lot of hurt. I see a lot of heartache. I see people facing major problems that seem hopeless and helpless to them. And yet I constantly have to remind myself that God is able to bring back to life any situation that appears beyond resurrection. Always keep in mind that God is a resurrection specialist. And to God, there is no such thing as a miracle because God operates just in who he is in the miraculous. Here's what I'm trying to say. No believer has a right to give up on the church or any part of the church because Jesus, reading this letter, hasn't given up on a lukewarm church. Even to Sardis, Jesus said, strengthen Guys, strengthen what remains. And so with that attitude in mind, we are now able to approach the task of evaluating what was wrong with the church in Laodicea. Once again, we are faced with two totally different viewpoints. One is the outer view. The other is the spiritual view. The outer view of the church or the spiritual view of Christ. And these two views are uh, diametrically opposed to each other. The Laodiceans, the Laodiceans, we read, consider themselves, Revelation 3.17, to be wealthy and to be in need of nothing. Once you and I have lost our sense of need of him, we could be in danger, we are in danger spiritually. But we can almost imagine those who attend this church Man, they were decked out in the high fashion. They were very much in vogue. No doubt they had the name brand tennis shoes. They had the designer clothes. They had a Starbucks coffee in their hands, you know. They had it going on, or at least they thought they did. Christ, on the other hand, sees her as a blind pauper, filthy, disheveled, and scantily clad in rags. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. No doubt in the mind of this local church, there were some, they had some of the finest attributes. And yet how easily it is to deceive ourselves into thinking that what looks impressive to the world also looks impressive to God. Church, nothing could be further from the truth. Let me put it this way. What mankind, what you say, what I say, what man says has no bearing with God. Opinion polls don't matter here. Social status makes no difference. 
let me be a little candid here, a little tongue-in-cheek. How many Facebook friends you have or Twitter followers or Instagram contacts, it simply doesn't matter to him. How many blogs you write and how many people read your blogs or how many YouTube videos you put on on the internet and how many followers you have subscribed to that, it matters, it matters not. It, nor does the architecture of the building or the color of the carpet or if we sing hymns or choruses. Or, I add, if we have fog machines or special lighting effects, God is not impressed with how many personalities would even attend our church or the amount of money given to the poor. Laodicea was prosperous, and yet they became self-sufficient. It is odd indeed to me and ironic that only a couple decades ago, countless believers poured out of old, prosperous, established churches to establish simple New Testament churches. How many remember the Jesus people movement of the 70s, early 70s and so? I mean, we recoiled in horror at the superficiality of worldly wealth and set out to build a simpler simpler, uh, spiritual culture. And yet today, prosperity has become one of the great yardsticks of spiritual success, even among Bible-believing and spirit-filled churches. We have, quite simply, recreated the reliance on wealth for which we judged the previous generations. Do you realize that today there are more tele-evangelists today than any other period of church history? And many of them, not all, but many of them, try to convince the body of Christ that the true measure of spiritual maturity is whether you're financially prospering. One almost gets the idea, if you listen to them, that if you're living on an average income, you're next to being backslidden. Because God wouldn't want you to have you that way. We have pastors in this city, in Mesa, saying, God wants you to be a millionaire. Benny Hinn recently, in the last few years, denounced the prosperity gospel. So my question is, have we so quickly forgotten what Jesus had to say about this attitude? You recall that addressing the Pharisees, Jesus states in Luke 16, 13 through 15, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Here again, we have two divergent opinions expressed. Man's view versus God's view. And I can tell you, God's view is the only one that we should be concerned about. God does not esteem prosperity the way we do. And I'm going to close with this because the time is 7.12 already. Uh, does God prosper his people? Yes, he does. Deuteronomy 8.18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. 
Proverbs 13, 22, the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Psalm 35, 27, let them shout for joy and be glad. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. Proverbs 13, 21, prosperity is reward of the righteous. You recall that Abraham was a man of great wealth. Isaac prospered. Jacob prospered. David gave the equivalent of a $5 million offering in one church offering. That's not bad for someone who started out with a few stones and a slingshot. Solomon was extremely wealthy. It says King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on, of the earth. These are the children of God, and God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His streets are paved with gold. Heaven's gates are made of the stuff that we wear as jewelry. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills. Amen? Psalm 37:25. I was young, and now I am old, and yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Psalm 4:19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. In Psalm 84, 11, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And so, yes, church, God prospers his people, but he also sees prosperity as a huge and potential deadly trap. Here's my summary of this. Remember, it's not wrong to have stuff. Make sure stuff doesn't have you. Amen? Amen? Okay, it's 7.15, and I'm going to pause right there. We'll put a break in it right there, put the break on hold. We'll pick this up next week. Uh, reread this. Reread this and, and meditate on what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea. Other than that, God bless you all. Have a good evening. Uh, Sunday school starts this Sunday. Class uh, being taught by Justin and Rebecca, and it's on marriage and the family, right? Base family and marriage and such. So we're going to have a great time in Sunday school as well. But if you have kids, pick them up. God bless you all. Have a great evening in the Lord. Amen.